Gentlemen, welcome to Blood Brothers Men and the Blood Brothers Podcast. My name is Jeff Bruce, and uh, welcome to episode 70. If you did not see episode 69, go back and take a quick look at that. I'll give you an overview, though, of what we're doing. So if you have followed Blood Brothers Men for a while, um, you've heard that we've been making a shift over really the past year. There hasn't been a whole lot that uh, that I've been doing, but we are starting now, starting today, with something new. Uh, one of my goals is for us as men to develop our theology, especially in this world, the culture we live in. It's so important that we know God's Word. And, uh, and not just take what we might hear on Sunday mornings, which may be very great, very valuable, uh, but we still need to be studying scripture ourselves and developing our theology, especially to face the world that we live in. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through Calvin's Institutes, which is basically his, uh, his systematic theology. Uh, we're going to be going through book one, chapter one, sections one, two, and three uh, today. And I'm, what I'm going to do basically is each time I'm going to read through a section uh, depending on how long it is, but probably three or four pages each episode. Um, I'm going to put up for you my actual pages from the book where my underlines are and some of my comments in the margins for you to see. And then I'm just going to go back and share my thoughts and comments on what we've read. Uh, please, please give me your feedback, whether it's through email or in the comment section, uh, because I don't make any claim to be an expert on these things. And, you know, um, we rub off on each other. We, we learn from each other. And so you may have a different perspective than I do. You may get other things that I am missing. And in fact, I know there's some sections in this that I feel like maybe I'm not fully grasping. And so you might have some insights that I don't. So this is really a podcast that we're doing together uh, just to benefit each other. And so I hope you find some value in it. Um, let me start reading and, uh, and then we'll go back and review. Book one, The Knowledge of God the Creator, chapter one. The knowledge of God and that of ourselves are connected. How are they interrelated? Number one, without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But while joined by many bonds, which one precedes and brings forth the other is not easy to discern. In the first place, no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to the contemplation of God, in whom he lives and moves. For quite clearly, the mighty gifts with which we are endowed are hardly from ourselves, Indeed, our very being is nothing but subsistence in the one God. Then, by these benefits shed like dew from heaven upon us, we are led as by rivulets to the spring itself. Indeed, our very poverty better discloses the infinitude of benefits reposing in God. The miserable ruin into which the rebellion of the first man casts us especially compels us to look upward. Thus, not only will we, in fasting and hungering, seek thence what we lack, but in being aroused by fear, we shall learn humility. For as a veritable world of miseries is to be found in mankind, and we are thereby despoiled of divine raiment, our shameful nakedness exposes a teeming horde of infamies. Each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. Thus, from the feeling of our own ignorance, vanity, poverty, infirmity, and what is more depravity and corruption, we recognize that the true light of wisdom, sound virtue, full of abundance in every good and purity of righteousness, rests in the Lord alone. To this extent, we are prompted by our own ills to contemplate the good things of God, and we cannot seriously aspire to him before we begin 
to become displeased with ourselves. For what man in the world would not gladly remain as he is? What man does not remain as he is so long as he does not know himself? That is, while content with his own gifts, and either ignorant or unmindful of his own misery. Accordingly, the knowledge of ourselves not only arouses us to seek God, but also, as it were, leads us by the hand to find him. Section 2. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. Again, it is certain that man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face, and then descends from contemplating him to scrutinizing himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. For, because all of us are inclined by nature to hypocrisy, a kind of empty image of righteousness in place of righteousness itself abundantly satisfies us. And because nothing appears within or around us that has not been contaminated by great immorality, what is a little less vile pleases us as a thing most pure, so long as we confine our minds within the limits of human corruption. Just so, an eye to which nothing is shown but black objects judges something dirty white or even rather darkly mottled to be whiteness itself. Indeed, we can discern still more clearly from the bodily senses how much we are deluded in estimating the powers of the soul. For if in broad daylight we either look down upon the ground or survey whatever meets our view around us, we seem to ourselves endowed with the strongest and keenest sight. Yet when we look up to the sun and gaze straight at it, that power of sight which was particularly strong on earth is at once blunted and confused by a great brilliance. And thus we are compelled to admit that our keenness in looking upon things earthly is sheer dullness when it comes to the sun. So it happens in estimating our spiritual goods. As long as we do not look upon the earth, being quite content with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods. Suppose we but once begin to raise our thoughts to God and ponder his nature, and how completely perfect are his righteousness, wisdom, and power, the straight edge to which we must be shaped. Then what masquerading earlier as righteousness was pleasing in us will soon grow filthy in its consummate wickedness. What wonderfully impressed us under the name of wisdom will stink in its very foolishness. What wore the face of power will prove itself the most miserable weakness. That is, what in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. And section three, man before God's majesty. Hence that dread and wonder with which scripture commonly represents the saints as stricken and overcome whenever they felt the presence of God. Thus it comes about that we see men who in his absence normally remained firm and constant, but who when he manifests his glory are so shaken and struck dumb as to be laid low by the dread of death, are in fact overwhelmed by it and almost annihilated. As a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. Moreover, we have numerous examples of this consternation both in the book of Judges and in the prophets. So frequent was it that this expression was common among God's people. We shall die for the Lord has appeared to us. The story of Job and its description of God's wisdom, power, and purity 
always expresses a powerful argument that overwhelms men with the realization of their own stupidity, impotence, and corruption, and not without cause. For we see how Abraham recognizes more clearly that he is earth and dust when once he had come nearer to beholding God's glory, and how Elijah, with uncovered face, cannot bear to await his approach, such is the awesomeness of his appearance. And what can man do who is rottenness itself and a worm, when even the very cherubim must veil their faces out of fear? It is this indeed of which the prophet Isaiah speaks, the sun will blush and the moon be confounded when the Lord of hosts shall reign. That is, when he shall bring forth his splendor and cause it to draw nearer. The brightest thing will become darkness before it. Yet, however the knowledge of God and ourselves may be mutually connected, the order of right teaching requires that we discuss the former first, then proceed afterward to treat the latter. Okay, let's get right to this. We're going to go back to section one and go section by section. So Calvin says in the first place, he says that no one can look upon himself without immediately turning his thoughts to, to contemplation of God in whom he lives and he moves. So I certainly understand the conviction and I believe that many will immediately think of God once they begin to see themselves, you know, for who they are, um, which he soon, he soon gets to that. But I do think there is a difference today in, in our, like our human thought and the contemplation that we have. And Satan has learned better ways over time to, to hold our attention and um, our lack of introspection. So I don't know that I would agree that we immediately think of God when, when we look at ourselves, when we start to have some introspection. So some may, but not all. I love this uh, Pascal said in his Ponce, this is a great quote. He said, take away their diversion and you will see them bored to extinction. Then they will feel their nullity without recognizing it. For nothing could be more wretched than to be intolerably depressed as soon as one is reduced to introspection with no means of diversion. What an incredible quote. And that was written back in the 1500s. He agrees with Calvin in, in a sense, but he states how we are reduced to introspection once we have no means of diversion. And here's where it seems that culture would really play a role. And I'm certainly no expert on culture during the 1500s, never studied it, but I can tell you there was no TV, no phones, no social media, and I imagine people were much more present. They were greater thinkers and contemplators they assessed and wrote and read a lot more. And these are just best guesses, but today, I mean, we love our distractions and we have an unlimited number of them, you know, until I guess the power goes out and then you have no distractions. Um, and so I suppose I'm not disagreeing with Calvin as much as saying that we don't look upon ourselves very much, certainly not um, back, not as much as back in the 1500s. And we, we avoid introspection very, very well. Uh, and when we do momentarily think of ourselves, we may think negatively, we may see some of our misery, but we think, what do I, what do I need to do to gain or to regain my, my posture? You know, what post do I need to, to put up? What hashtags do I need to, to use to get ahead? Um, now I will say, I think nearly all men at some point in their life will cry out to God or, or a God and they'll see their misery. But I tend to think, um, staying in those, those like contemplative moments that we sometimes get and seeking God 
is a lot harder with all of the, the distractions, all the resources that we have available. I mean, think of the self-help industry, right? Just that alone. The books, uh, the YouTube channels, you can, you can look up any kind of issue you're facing and find a video on it. Uh, social media pages, virtual coaches, there's so many resources available to us today. So all that to say, I don't necessarily disagree with Calvin, but I think culture has made contemplation and introspection a lot harder for us to, to get to. So next, I love this idea of depravity providing some knowledge of God. And he says, um, each of us must then be so stung by the consciousness of his own unhappiness as to attain at least some knowledge of God. For the feeling of our own ignorance, our vanity, poverty, depravity, corruption, uh, because of that, we recognize the true light of wisdom in God alone. Now, if you are familiar with TULIP, you know what some people would call Calvinism, or it's basically their understanding of Calvinism, though it's really not Calvin's acronym. Uh, you start to see here that Calvin truly does recognize the total depravity of man. Uh, maybe that's where the T comes from. And I love this, not because it's, I mean, certainly not good, but because I can relate. And I think Calvin assumes the same exact thing of his readers. We recognize our unhappiness for one, and this often leads to seeing our depravity to some extent. Uh, it helps us see our desperate state. And I still struggle with saying that this leads to the Lord alone. Certainly those with no knowledge of scripture, though I'm sure there are few of any of those left in the world, but when there was, would they have been led to the Lord alone? And to me, it seems that man would seek God if he is aware of God. So not necessarily knowledge of God, but an awareness um, of God or small g, God. And so this may be, as mentioned earlier, self-help until even that fails. And then, and then who knows? Honestly, um, this is a place where I would love your comments because I feel like maybe I'm missing something here uh, for not fully agreeing with Calvin and his life's work. Um, so I'm not really sure. If you're seeing this differently, please let me know. Uh, but this also leads to, I think, to an Arminian view. Does man see his failures and think he has enough goodness to seek God? Uh, maybe that's not you know, completely an Arminian view, but it begs the question of our willingness to seek God in our sin, right? Right when we're in the middle of our sin. And so certainly Calvin would say the Holy Spirit alone does the work within us. And then at the end of section one, Calvin makes a simple yet beautiful point. He says, what man in the world would not gladly remain as he is and does remain as he is as long as he doesn't know himself? That is, while content with his own gifts and either ignorant or not mindful of his own misery. So just super, super wise statement there. You know, in other words, when all is well, right? When we think we have it all together, when there's no need of God, at least not knowingly, why would we seek him? Uh, but when we know ourselves, that is, when we, when we start to see our desperate state, then we are awakened to seeking him. Uh, or at least starting to seek answers. Okay, so that is section one. Let's go on to section two. Uh, and this is basically from what I from what I read, Calvin sort of expounding on, on section one. And so he says, for we always see ourselves as righteous and upright and holy and wise, unless there are proofs that we stand convicted of our impurity. And he says, what is a little less vile pleases us as a thing most pure. I mean, that is incredible truth. 
how often do we do some little good thing or help someone out or, you know, we receive a compliment for something we did and we kind of say, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm helpful. I'm wise. And, and maybe you are and have been and good for you. That's great. Um, but it does not make us good and upright and pure and holy just for the few little things that we might do compared to the amount of sin and, um, you know, and evil thoughts in our mind. And so Calvin goes on with these just really great analogies. And I want to simplify um, or just kind of restate one of them really just to summarize. You know, he basically says that with with daylight, right, he uses the, the sun. You know, we walk around and we see things with this this keen eyesight. And thanks to the sun, we can see, but stare at the sun and it's overpowering in its brilliance. And that makes me think of, of Brian Regan with the, with the sun stare. Um, but we are compelled to admit that our keenness on looking at things, you know, on the earth is really sheer dullness when compared to the sun. So just again, absolutely just great example. All of your good and wise deeds, you know, that you do are dull compared to the purity and holiness of God. And what does God say, you know, expect? Uh, what does he want? Be holy like he is. But we don't even scratch the surface, right? So it's like walking around and seeing things, but nothing compared to the sun. And then lastly, section three of chapter one, it's called Man Before God's Majesty. And, uh, and once again, um, he points out how insufficient we are. Um, he says that we aren't aware of our lowly state or the extent of it until we are compared to God's majesty, right? Which comes from recognizing ourselves first and then going to God alone. So Calvin concludes with, uh, which is a whole bunch of scriptures where person after person from the Bible recognized their lowly state, their rottenness when compared to God or even when they are in the presence of God. So his conclusion is that knowledge of self precedes knowledge of God. And if we think about our own experience, that is true for us as well. So, so there you have chapter one of book one of Calvin's Institutes and, uh, and also my recognition of how challenging this is going to be. But I think I'm up for it. Um, but it's also inspiring and something that is so, so necessary for us to do. Uh, combine this, please, with, with reading scripture. So what I, what I mean by that is take this information, right? Take what we just read and what we continue to read and watch for it over and over again in scripture with the different characters, uh, with the different um, writers. And, uh, and then in your own life, right? So we look at scripture, we see what it says, and then we make an application. So I wanna leave you with a challenge. I don't know if you do much journaling, but this is probably the best way to go about this. But I would say to journal about your conversion experience, uh, depending on you know who knows how long that was, but write about um, the time that you saw yourself for who you are and how that recognition of sin drove you to saving faith in Christ. And this is such an important message for you to be well aware of and even to pass on to your family, you know, to use in opportunities of evangelism. Um, it's just great information to have down and to know for yourself. Guys, thank you so much for joining me today. Let's never stop reforming. Grace and peace.